Blog Talk Radio. Hello, you are listening to Witches, Whiskey, and Wit. I am your host, Jason Mankey. Hi, I'm Jason. You're listening to Witches, Whiskey, and Wit. I'm your host. I am, you know, a guy who writes shit about witchcraft and paganism. And on this show, I talk to people who do witchcraft and paganism, and I do so generally while drinking whiskey. And I ask that my guests do something similar. I don't know. It just sort of lowers your inhibitions. It's probably not a good idea. One of these days, I'm going to like stick my foot directly in my mouth. However, it's been fun so far since I've jumped back into podcasting after a two-year sabbatical. So thank you for joining me tonight and being on the show. I always promise you two things out of the when it comes to this show. There will always be at least one witch. There will always be at least some whiskey, and there will always maybe be wit. I can usually only guarantee that the first two, the third is always more of a challenge we have one of my favorite witches here tonight, a friend of mine for the last, what, four or five years? I can't, can't remember how long it was. Maybe it was 2016 when I first met my guest, Kelvin, who is the author of The Crooked Path, An Introduction to Traditional Witchcraft, which means, in other words, we'll be like having an hour debate about Wicca and traditional witchcraft. Because that's what we do, right? When Wiccans talk to traditional witches? That's a rhetorical question, Keldon. That's how I'm, like, moving right into this, you know, adversarially. Oh, am I here? Yeah, you're here. Oh, hi. Sorry. Hi, it's so good to hear you. I, Yeah, clearly I've already hit the line, so... Yeah, like um, people will be quoting so, this for years. Then. What was that? People will probably be quoting this show for years if you're already deep into the wine. Oh, oh, great! <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. So, okay, so I missed your question. Okay, so. It was just really kind of a jokey question to welcome you on, but anytime it feels like Wiccans, Wiccan witches, and traditional witches are in the same place, it often feels kind of adversarial. And I don't think it needs to feel that way. I don't think it should <laughs> feel that way. I think it's getting better slowly, but traditionally, especially over the last five years, it's, it's been a bit rough, Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it makes me think of um, like the, <laughs> the the ill-fated dinner of the Witchcraft Research Association um, back in the '60s, and how um, they described it, how like yep, the Wiccan sat at one table, and, and like the traditional witches at the other, and it was just not <laughs> not a good time. And apparently, the dinner was terrible. Like, the food was awful. Um, 
I think yeah, Ralph I Hutton think says it's, in Triumph it's... of the Moon that it was the last time that uh, traditional suits were ever worn to a witch gathering. <laughs> but I'm, I'm sorry to I'm sorry for interrupting you. But yeah, go on. No, I but I think it's true. I think that there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot of fighting and feuding, and I think it's been there from the start of right like when we think of what we call like the modern witchcraft revival um and essentially of course it's that it's that fight for authenticity who's you know who's the real witch um and it's just really stupid um it's so pointless um but i think you're right i think in the last few years it's really um it's really come up again, and I think it does that every so often. Um, but especially with social media, I think um, it's, it's much more prevalent, I think, um, because through that, through that um, medium, through social media, we see it a lot more than maybe we would um, before that. Well, I mean, social media is the worst ever. Unless, of course, you're just following me, maybe a few other people like Keldon and Thorin Mooney online. <laughs> Anything mm-hmm. more than that is too much, right? Right. Yeah. So, I really, we've got to kind of have to start with what is a traditional witchcraft. While you and I are giant history nerds, and it makes me so happy to hear someone talk about the Witchcraft Research, Research Association dinner in 1964 because <laughs> my wife says like nobody knows what the fuck that is Jason and I'm like what? what I actually wrote about it in a book once and didn't cite it and my editor was like you have to cite that and I'm like duh everyone knows the witchcraft research association dinner was in apparently not yeah apparently not but you know you and I right. as history nerds know that traditional witchcraft has been around really since the late, at least the late fifties, but it mm-hmm. seems to have gotten more gravity, especially over the last five or six years. And I think there are a lot of people who are not familiar with the term. So, can you tell us what mm-hmm. traditional witchcraft is without just saying it's not Wicca? Sure. Um, my definition that I've I've come to utilize over the years is that. Traditional witchcraft, and I'm sorry, I will start by saying it is a witchcraft path that is non-Wiccan, but it is a path that is influenced by folklore. Um, It is a path that uses operative magic in the sense of essentially really that folk magic. Um, It's a path that involves working with spirits, working with the other world, um, and it's a path that works with the natural landscape, specifically the land that you live on. Um, in that traditional witchcraft is also, it's more of an umbrella term. It doesn't describe one um, unified path collection of different paths. Um, I think, a, a, you know, one of the things I always bring up is the issues with the term traditional, um, because it's a really loaded term. Um, and when you put that in front of a word like witchcraft, it can be really misleading. Um, it makes you think that this is a witchcraft that is very old, um, that has not 
you know, that has not changed at all from whenever the hell it was created. Um, and that it, it's a unified universal thing where everybody's doing the same thing and believing the same thing. Um, and that's just not true. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if that's like always the most helpful definition. Um, and I'm I sure we'll get into that good. more. I thought uh, it was pretty good. Thank you. You know, I mean, you, you did write a book um, about is, it. I'd hope that... they'd be able to define it. <laughs> well, you would hope that. Um, but the thing is, is that I think witchcraft in general is so hard to define, um, right? Like we're never, you can never really paint these broad brushstrokes because there's always going to be something that's left out, Um and, and those hard and fast rules, right? So, like, when we think of, well, what is, the, what is the difference between Wicca and traditional witchcraft is that there really isn't this distinct, firm line that separates them. It's really, um, it's really blurry, and there's a lot of overlap, which, like, spoiler alert, they're both forms of witchcraft. Um, so, of course, <laughs> there's a lot of overlap. Um, like... So, um, but I know a lot of people tend to, um, you know, like, like you pointed out, like a lot of people tend to define traditional witchcraft by what it's not. Um, so it's not Wicca. It's not, um, you know, the Wiccan Reed or the Law Three or whatever, like other um, kind of cliche things that people might say. Um, so really the thing that I point to the most is that it is a path that is inspired by folklore. You mentioned authenticity, and I think that is a really big selling point, especially in traditional witchcraft. So within Wicca, ever since the publication of Triumph of the Moon, it feels that was in 1999. So it feels like we've got a pretty good handle on where modern Wiccan witchcraft really came from. But traditional witchcraft Mm -hmm. is kind of another beast. And when I talk to traditional witches, they always like to tell me how much older their practice is right. than my practice. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think that people are attracted to traditional witchcraft because maybe primarily they think that it's older and represents something more authentic? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, um, I think by and large what people, when people come to witchcraft, they're looking for a sense of power. And I think one of the forms of, of feeling empowered is feeling authentic, right? Like you want to feel real. Um, and one of the things by and large that people um, look for when they look for authenticity is age. We, we give a lot of credit to the age of something. Um, and I think in some regards that makes sense. Like if something is really old and it's stuck around, it must mean that it's, um, you know, it's really stood the test of time. But, um, you know, that's not, that's, not, um, that's not an inherent truth. And so I think people look at Wicca as like, oh, like this is this, you know, newfangled thing, even though, I mean, it's, it's really not. I mean, right, like, I mean, relatively speaking, okay, like it's, it's not super, super old, but, but I mean, it's had decades of history now. Um, and so people come to traditional witchcraft with this idea that it's really old and therefore it's really real and it's going to make them feel really real and really empowered. Um, 
And that, I just, I don't think it works that way. Um, because, I mean, one, and, like, my mind is splitting off into, like, 50 different tangents. Um, but, like, one of the things is that I think if you look at traditional witchcraft as somehow being more historically, um, you know, valid or authentic versus Wicca, I think then you are having a complete misunderstanding of the history of witchcraft and especially of modern witchcraft. Um, it goes back to that idea that Wicca and traditional witchcraft are two sides of the same coin and they're drawing from the same roots. Um, now they tend to take those roots and branch out in different directions, but they're drawing from the same sources. Um, and, you know, I think it, it you know, at, at the most basic level, like we think, right, like about um, Margaret Murray, like I always go back to Margaret Murray, like she goes and she pulls from all of these trial records, which are a huge source of inspiration for traditional witches. She uses that to build her witch cult hypothesis, which always blows my mind that, like, she gets so much shit for that. But, like, there are people that came before her who also were promoting a witch cult hypothesis, and, like, they never sure. get crapped on. Um, and, again, spoiler alert, they're mostly men. Um, so, but, but then we know that Margaret Murray was super influential to Gardner um, and to the modern witchcraft revival as a whole. And I, so I think people overlook these nuances in our history and they just go, oh, like Wicca was just, you know, this, this made up bull crap, but, you know, traditional witchcraft is so much older, but it's like, read a book, read a history book. Do you um, think some of the problem might lie in how we define witchcraft? Because, I mean, it, it feels like more and more there are a multitude mm-hmm. of definitions. And, I mean, the, to some extent that's always been true. But, I mean, especially in the 90s, and I know that you were mm-hmm. born in, what, 1994? <laughs> so, you know, you may not remember them very well. But also you make me feel like I'm 175. But in, <laughs> in the 90s, you know, it was pretty common for – Witch and Wiccan, Wicca and witchcraft to be used as synonyms. And yeah. for a lot of us who came up in that era, witchcraft was not just a magical practice. It was a religion. It was mm-hmm. our spirituality. Mm-hmm. And now you have people right. saying, well, witchcraft is not spirituality. It can't be a religion. Mm-hmm. So do some of our problems come mm-hmm. from how we define that word? Right. Yeah. I think that um, you know, again, it's that idea that, like, I just think the nature of the beast is that there's no way to succinctly define it for all people. And I think it's really foolish for us to try. Um, and I don't know if, you know, back in the 90s, if, like, it was just what made it easier for people to, um, you know, maybe feel more cohesion under a definition. But I think about, um, like, one thing that comes to my mind is um, you were talking, um, and you've talked about this in many different places, but about how, like, a lot of times people um, refer to Wicca as a fertility religion, and you're like, no, it's a magical religion. Right. Um, and I think that that itself is, is super important, is that, you know, there's, there's multiple ways of defining Wicca, um, 
And when we when we go back to that kind of trad crop versus Wicca thing, I think a lot of yeah, times the, um, the argument that's it's probably the bed like, I'm gonna have to die on the magical religion <laughs> thing because it really it really pisses off some people, especially like Gardnerians mm-hmm. and stuff. You know, just pisses them mm-hmm. off. So I, I was it was at Pantheacon many years ago, uh-huh. know, like four four years ago. I'm talking to these people who are, you know, they're, they identify as traditional witches and they really despise Wicca. You know, it was like, huh, you mm-hmm. know, the nose is breathing ozone. And they were talking about, you know, like I do these things, you know, come from 1900 and, you know, passed around like folk magic and stuff. So I come from a long right. line of witches. And I think that's um, some of our problem. Because those people in the year 1900 or 1850 or 1740 or whatever mm-hmm. would not have self-identified as witches, right? Oh, absolutely not. Um, right, kind of thinking about like the cunning folk or like folk medical right. practitioners. Um, yeah, that's a huge that's a huge thing um, within. So, like when I was kind of bringing up this definition of traditional witchcraft, it's like we're very inspired by folk magic. Um, And so we have, um, you know, thanks to the work of of different folklorists, um, people like people like Cecil Williamson um, and the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic, uh, we have all of these examples of of the way people worked folk magic. Um, And we think... um, kind of the standard group of people, right, we refer to as the cunning folk. Um, but those weren't people who, prob- I mean, realistically, probably would not have self-identified as witches. Um, the, I think there's an, ar- there's an argument to be made about how, like, the society around them would have defined them. Absolutely. Um, but, but a lot of the work that those people were doing were against the suspected witches. Um, and I think that, I think that that's a, that's a, I guess, nuance that's not often made is that we can look and be inspired by a practice. We can be inspired by that folk magic and include it in our practice while also making the distinction that, like, those people weren't witches. Um, that was not, that was not witchcraft. Um, and maybe that's another part of the puzzle is, like, how do we differentiate between magic and witchcraft? A lot of time it seems like people... Um, just assume that, like, if it's magic, if it looks like a spell or a ritual, it's witchcraft. Um, that, and that's that really not seems, true. That really seems to be sort of the new definition that we're headed towards. You know, it's a, you know, I'm doing mm-hmm. this spell. It looks very pretty. I have these candles. I'm using right. things that look like, probably, for lack of a better word, that look like Wicca, but it's divorced from, like, a goddess or that kind of thing. And so sure. what is called witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And am I right there? Is that does it feel like we're heading in that direction? You know, as you say that, I feel like it. I feel like it does. It almost feels like the more it's like we're getting, we're getting more inclusive. Like you know, like that's kind of the argument that comes up is like as we become more inclusive and and we, you know, definitions become broader, we start to lose identity. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if I've really come to a good conclusion or idea of, you know, or a response to that. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, you're you're one of 
maybe eight or nine people I can completely indulge my inner geek with when it comes to witchcraft history. I mean, you've already said Cecil Williamson. I mean, the cockles of my goaty heart are beating faster. I mean, most people don't know who Mm -hmm. Cecil is, but a lot of people don't even know that Gerald Gardner is like the dad of Wicca today, you know. So lots of different (laughs) – that joke will never get old. Joke will never get old. Right. Uh, You know, but we're not very good with our history and stuff. And with you, I can, I can indulge in all that. And I, and I love it. So I want to indulge in kind of the first traditional witch. So who would you say is kind of the first person that we would identify as a traditional witch in the modern era? Like historically? Yeah. Um, um, Yeah. It's like like the only answer. Right. I'm like, I don't know. Is this a Can you talk? <laughs> I, would, I would say Robert Cochran. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I would say, I would say um, Cecil Williamson, um, but I think that the, like he, uh, he's one of those people where it's like he was really um, cagey about defining himself as a witch. Um, and so I, I don't want to define, I don't want to, to find him for him. Um, but so I would say Robert Cochran. Um, yes. Cecil is something else because, you know, you, you sense that he's interested in magic. I'm sure you have the biography of, all, of him and all that, you know, and you get the yep. sense that he loves this yeah. stuff, but he's also not someone that comes out and says, hello, I'm practicing witchcraft. Right. You know, it's something he keeps to his right. best. So he would, right. So he would say um, things like, I'm not, you know, I'm not a witch in the sense that you're thinking or, you know, would give some other kind of label. Like, you know, I'm a magpie. And you're like, okay, cool. Um, so, I mean, he also made statements that were very seemingly like anti-witch um, from time to time. Um, so, yeah, it's a little confusing there. But, but definitely Robert Cochran, I would say, is kind of the first person um, that comes to mind when you think of like a traditional witch. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about Robert Cochran? Because I, I think that's a name that just a lot of people don't know, even if he has been extremely influential, especially I think over the last 20 years. Right. Um, so Robert Cochran, whose real name was Roy Bowers, um, he kind of comes to the to the forefront um, in the 60s, and he um, so he kind of going back going back to the Witchcraft Research Association. Um, they had launched their Pentagram newsletter, um, and and in I think it was the second issue. Um, he he publishes this article where he basically comes out against Gerald Gardner and is like, you know, that's a bunch of bullshit. Um, that's not real witchcraft. This is, you know, what real witchcraft is. Um, and that wasn't the first time he had, he had published an article in Psychic News um, prior to that. Um, but, but this was really the first time I think that he comes really into the public, the witchcraft public eye. Um, and, and from there, he publishes a few more articles we don't know a whole, necessarily a whole lot um, in compar- 
about him, like in comparison to what we know about other people. He never wrote any books. Um, so what we know about him is from the accounts of people who knew him, like Dorian Valiente, um, through the articles he wrote or through a series of letters that he wrote to, to different people um, that have since been published on the internet and then in an anthology. Um, so he, he comes to the forefront and he really, I think the crux of his ideas is that witchcraft is a mystery, um, is a mystery cult and, and witches are looking to, um, to learn like true knowledge and gnosis um, it's not, it's not about fertility. It's about knowledge and power. Um, and so he establishes his working group, um, that is still, is still ongoing today, the clan of Tubal Cain. Um, and of course, Dorian Valiente was a member of that after she left Gardner's Coven. Um, and a lot of the kind of essentially like the three, the three main rituals of traditional witchcraft that I think are pretty standard across different permutations um, come, come from him. Um, the, main, the main ritual tool that is, is so iconic to traditional witchcraft, the stang, comes from him. Um, so we really, you know, we really owe a lot to him. I would say that he's kind of what, what Gerald Gardner is to Wicca, Robert Cochran is to traditional witchcraft. So there are probably a lot of people who are not familiar with stangs, since I did ne- I never got to write the witch's stang, you know, like. <laughs> and I always assumed yeah, it would be in the wand book, but that was written by a druid, so you know, it never really came yeah. up. Can you talk about what a stang is and how it's used? Yes. So a stang, at its at its very um, base, is a Forks branch um, staff length, although um, you could certainly have wand length stangs. That's actually the first one was, uh, which I think would maybe make some people cringe. Um, but um, essentially, is a forked ritual staff. And in Cochrane's tradition, um, the stang was really used as an altar, as an homage to the horned god, to the devil. Right, so his, of course, the the two branches, the tines, represent his horn, um, and that stang um, can be can be positioned in different parts of the ritual space. But a lot of times, it's put in the north, um, which is a direction folklorically associated with the devil. Um, sometimes the stang is dressed up with different um, foliage, depending on the season. Um, sometimes there's crossed arrows and a wreath, which represent the dual nature of the horned god as a light bringer, um, the god of life, and, and the kind of sonic god or lord of the mounds, um, the bringer of death. And, and then um, I guess I would say out of all of the decorations, most iconically would be the candle between the times, which represents the light betwixt the horns, which is <laughs> such, like, that's like, right, that's, um, I don't know what the term I'm looking for. How but do you, it's a how common do you keep thing your candle? How do you keep your candle? How do I what? I mean, that, how do you keep the candle there? That, I mean, that's okay. a magic in and of itself. So um, sometimes, sometimes people make stangs with, like, actually candle holders affixed to them. Mine has this little kind of lip, and if I melt the bottom of a candle, I can usually stick it to it. Um, not too long ago, I was doing a ritual 
<laughs> and it was kind of a windy night. And so the candle burned down and my thing actually lit on fire. Um, and I had this <laughs> moment of like looking at it and being like, oh, that's so beautiful and like magical. And maybe I should just let it be. Um, so now there's kind of this um, really dramatic kind of charring on it, which I actually really love. But it's like this moment of like, I think I should just let it be. Um, so, so the candle represents the light between betwixt the horns or between the horns. Um, and that represents the divine illumination that the devil or um, the old one brings to us. Um, so, and that's, and that's something too that comes out of um, the folklore of, of witch trial transcripts. Um, so, um, and so the stang, right? So as an altar, um, then, you know, maybe you would put your other ritual implements or spell implements at the base or around the base of the stang. So a fun fact, um, I'm not sure if I've ever told you this, but the first time I actually heard about a stang, which was many, many years ago, was actually in To Ride a Silver Broomstick by Silver Ravenwolf. Um, she talks about stangs in there, um, which I think is just a fun piece of trivia. Um, yes, yeah, especially in 1991. Right. Um, and then in a more kind of modern sense, um, we use stangs as a way of directing energy, just like you would a staff or a wand or in Wicca, you might use your athame. Um, so you can also use it too as a, as a tool in hedge crossing. So much like you might use a broomstick um, as a symbolic tool for carrying your spirit into the other world or over the hedge, you could also use a stang in that way. So it's, it's a very um, multi-purpose tool. Um, and yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I missed that. I need to go back and reread my to ride a silver broomstick. I think the first place I ever read about a stang was in the rebirth of witchcraft Doreen Valiente's oh, memoir. Sure. Yeah. I love that book mm-hmm. so much. Like when her biography came out, and I love, I love Philip Heselton, but I mean, it's really hard to compete with the words of the woman herself. I mean, it's just right. so good. And the best chapter in that book is her reminiscences of Robert Cochran. Yeah. Yeah. When I first read it, I was always like, oh, it's so sad that this, this practice seems to no longer exist. And then little did I know. So mm-hmm. she talks <laughs> about Cochrane in her book. And while Cochrane is pretty much maybe like the founder, the first public face of traditional witchcraft, mm-hmm. he is also problematic in some ways, right? I mean, even maybe yes. more so than Gerald. I would, I would agree with that. Um, yeah. yeah, he definitely had his not so great moments. Um, you know, he's somebody is like when people ask that question of like, who would you, you know, if you could have dinner with anybody, um, he's my answer sometimes just because I would love to get, especially as a therapist, like I kind of want to psychoanalyze him a little bit. Um, because I mean, one of the things he is, he's known for is, was his um, very extreme dislike for Wicca and for Jill Gardner specifically. Um I mean, I would, I, I refer to it as like obsessional, um, you know, like there was totally this, this ax to grind. And, you know, when you think about those, those fights for authenticity, um, here was a, here was a major one. Um, you know, 
he goes on about, you know, Gerald Gardner, like this is, right, um, he's the one I believe that referred to, like, right, like the little house that Gerald built. Mm-hmm. Um, and, For me, um, for me, my favorite is, oh, go ahead. It, is it the Night like, of the Long my, Knives? Yes, that's my favorite is Night of the Long Knives. He wanted to quote a night um, of the long knives with the gardenarians, which, wow. Right. You know, I just, I just can't imagine like right. Starhawk saying that reclaiming wants a night of the long knives well, with the Alexandrians. And, and when I first, when I first encountered that quote, like I was like, I mean, obviously, right. If a, um, it's, it's about violence, but it's, it's about a series of political executions that were carried out by the Nazis. Um, like, and so whether or not he's joking, it's, it's completely inappropriate, um, and problematic. And is the, I mean, largely the reason, I mean, not, I think it's the straw that broke the camel's back, but why Doreen left the clan of Tubal-Cain, um, you know, and she stands up to him and she says, you know, if that's what your sick little heart desires, like you'll have to do it yourself, um, or on your own, um, and, you know, and obviously there was a lot going on with him. Um, you know, for listeners who don't know, he, he ended up completing suicide um, in, in 1966. So, I mean, really from when he emerged on the witchcraft scene to the time of his death, it wasn't, it wasn't that long at all. Um, so we really do only get this brief glance into, into his life and his beliefs, um, and and that's really sad. I I I do wonder what things would be like if he, you know, if he was still around or like if he had, um, you know, lived longer. Um, that's one of the many mysteries, I guess. Yeah, I often wonder too. And I, I have a picture of him on our shrine of Mighty Dead. I don't know how he feels about mm-hmm. hanging out with Wiccans. Shrine of the Mighty Dead, and when I put him there, I was right. like, you know, this is kind of a cosmic joke because you probably hate being here, but I can't deny the influence he's had right. on my own craft mm-hmm. and the craft of so many others. Mm-hmm. So one right. of the things about Robert Cochran is, if you read Cochran's letters, they're written purposefully in kind of mm-hmm. like riddles and. They're full of bullshit and are just really (laughs) difficult to understand. Beginning a Mm -hmm. long pattern amongst writers of traditional witchcraft material to be really Mm -hmm. difficult. Uh, Why is that when I pick up a book from Three Hands Press or whatever else it is? (laughs) It feels like it was intentionally written uh, to give me a headache. Mm Okay. Okay. So here's the tea on that, because I think you're absolutely right. I think that I think that Cochran um, played a role in that, but it certainly it it was certainly an already existing precedent before then. Um, you know, in the research I'm doing for this new book, I've <laughs> I've had to do a lot of um, deep diving into um, Austin Olsen Spar, Kenneth Grant, Andrew Chumbly, uh, and and they're all writing in a way that it's it's very um, wordy um um and it's not what i feel it kind of gives you a headache um i was gonna say that's very common to call it wordy (laughs) 
I'm a very judicious person, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but um, there's this kind of idea that, um, you know, it's, it's like you have to decipher it. You have to work for that knowledge um, that through, um, through these words you will experience some sort of initiation or, um, I guess, maybe trance-induced hypnosis from your eyes glazing over. But um, there you go. That's a little catty. Um, that was catty. But, <laughs> but, um, but right. And so I think there's, again, it's a piece of authenticity that, um, you know, you could write, you could write very in, in very plain speak what this ritual is about, or you could pull out a thesaurus, use really complex words and really strange spellings, um, and, and then make it seem super legit. It kind of reminds me, and this just popped into my mind, is how, um, kind of like the Ardanes, <laughs> like, um, this I can neither like, confirm so, nor deny that the Ardanes exist, <laughs> Keldon. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, um, anyways, I guess. No, I'm teasing. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, um, well, okay. Um, but this kind of like faux archaic, um, you know, like English or like old English. Um, and I think that's the same. It's this idea that it somehow makes it more, more authentic, um, you know, and, and there's a certain level of pretense to it too, whether it's intentional or not. And I'm kind of inclined to, to feel that in some places it is intentional is that it's like, you know, well, if you're too stupid to understand this, then like this, you know, you're just not cut out to be a witch. Um, and I just don't vibe with that. I don't vibe, right? I talked about that in the introduction to my book is that, um, you know, a lot of people who are interested in traditional witchcraft, whether just as like a casual um, observer or somebody who's looking to, um, to get started on the path, is that these books are really off-putting. Um, and, and I think that that idea of, you know, having to work for it, um, I think speaks to a certain level of privilege. Um, and I think I always return to this idea of like, if traditional witchcraft is really kind of about folklore and this idea of like the folkloric witch is that what would that witch have theoretically been doing? Would they have been buying expensive grimoires um, and deciphering them with the reading skills that they really didn't have um, or would they have been doing very practical things that come from the heart and from the spirit? Um, are you so suggesting? That's, I mean, that's are you suggesting yes. that the books of people who practice cunning craft weren't all um, didn't all have leather uh, made from emus and you know gold stamped covers? and sold for $350 special hardback editions. Are you suggesting it was perhaps a little earthier than that? I would. Uh, yes, no, that is exactly what I'm saying. Um, and I, don't, I guess I don't want to diminish the fact that in, like, that I think there is a place in traditional witchcraft. Um, there are practices and, and specific traditions that are more ceremonial in nature, um, that are more based in kind of that grimoire tradition. Um, and so really I, I speak for, I speak for myself and my own path, but, um, I do think it was a lot earthier if there, if there was this, 
you know, witchcraft in the ye old ages, it would have been, it would have been a lot earthier than um, this idea of like, you know, the high temple, um, because really that's, I mean, that's ceremonial magic and that's not necessarily witchcraft. And ceremonial magic, you have to have like 10 different blades to do it. If you're reading the key of Solomon, right. I mean, you have to have a small fortune just to have all your tools. It wasn't easy to do. Absolutely. And, um, you know, and literacy would have been an issue, um, you know, and I know there's some debate about that, about like, you know, some of the, the cunning folk and whether or not they possessed um, literacy, literacy, now, now the wine's really kicked in, literacy skills, but um, I think <laughs> witchcraft at its heart is, is meant to be earthier. Um, when you think about kind of the long history of witchcraft being um, kind of the vocation of the oppressed, and the downtrodden um, is that, you know, those are people who would have been um, of the lower class, of the peasant class, um, because they would have been the people who would have had such dire need to, to risk their lives um, to do these things. Um, and, of course, in trial transcripts, you come across people who are from wealthy families or who even are even from, like, royal or high, you know, high society families. Um, but I think that those are um, more of the minority, um, and really, it's people who are who are being, um, you know, who have who have needs that aren't being met by like the justice system or or things like that, who are turning to to witchcraft supposedly. Um, well, certainly, they were turning to magical practices. What? So I'm going to kind of change gears here a little bit, and I want to talk about sure. your book, The Crooked Path, An Introduction yeah. to Traditional Witchcraft. So and I want to talk ex- um, specifically about some of your interactions with Llewellyn, who, is, who publishes books for both of us. A couple of years sure. ago, I turned in The Witch's Wheel of the Year, and mm-hmm. I wanted to put some traditional witchcraft-style witches rituals in there because I didn't want it to just be a Wiccan book. Uh, Finding a traditional witchcraft ritual is very difficult because of of the way a lot of these books are written. Uh, You can go back and look at some of them, and you can tell that they're very far from the source, Robert Cochran, uh, who I would look to, you know, to to put together Mm -hmm. things. Your writing, though, is really crystal clear about it. It was kind of like this lodestone <laughs> followed as much as I could. Oh, oh man, you, you are fast. You are fantastic. You and Tara Love McGuire and Christopher Orpello are mm-hmm. amongst some of my favorite people because you write about traditional witchcraft in a way that is accessible and provides a way for people to do it without having to spend $3,000 and you know, cobble <laughs> right. together a ritual system for years. And I'm not mocking the, the books that are two or three hundred dollars. I sure. buy those things. I'm a whore. I do it. I love it. It's right. fun. Yeah. But everybody else. But you you all write about in this really accessible way. But I was dealing with Llewellyn and they were like, You capitalize traditional witchcraft all the way through. And I'm like, Yes, because mm-hmm. it's like Wicca, it's a witchcraft path. And it seemed like the idea was really novel to them. Like they really weren't aware 
of this kind of other stream of witchcraft mm-hmm. that is becoming increasingly popular. Did you have similar interactions mm-hmm. with them while writing your book? So I, uh, by and large, I think um, they were really good about about listening to me and allowing me to kind of fill in potential gaps in their knowledge. Um, you know, like I think um, about some of the notes I received back, like they were talking, um, they were like, you know, when you talk about this ritual, can you talk about how it relates to, um, you know, like this Wiccan ritual? And I just put my foot down and I said, no, like, um, you know, I talk about Wicca in, you know, in the, um, in the first chapter and how it relates, but, but this is, you know, this is something else. And I think um, that needs to be respected. Um, and I think my primary concerns when writing this book is how they were going to respond to um, specifically about talking about the devil. Um, and I had a lot of anxiety um, while writing this book that that was going to be something that they were going to read and they were going to be like, absolutely not. Um, yeah. And that did not happen at all. Um, uh, my editor, Heather Green, who I really adore, um, you know, she just brought up that there are going to be people going to be people who read this and they're going to be like what and they might get mad um, but I had already been accustomed to that through writing for Papios um, through writing um, you know I had a little minor blog before then um, and so I've already dealt with people who um, you know are like that's absolutely terrible why would you say that um, so by and large they were very supportive and very um you know, I didn't face any anything that was like, you know, why why are you saying these things? This is not. Um, I think that they do have a very, um, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but a very Wiccan centric understanding of witchcraft, um, even if it's something that's not being specifically labeled as Wicca. Um, and I think that I think that they're growing in that sense. I think that they're starting to um, publish a lot more books. Um, on, on different witchcrafts and, and, and magic. Um, so I, I give them props for that, and I give them props for really listening to me and, um, and um, finding new ways of understanding and looking at things. Um, yeah. You bring up the devil, and that is a Ew. big topic in traditional witchcraft. And, you know, if you don't remember the 90s, very well, because you were such a <laughs> such a young babe. Uh, but you know, in the '90s, the mantra was always like, "The horned god is not the devil. We don't worship yep. the devil. We don't believe in right. the devil." You know, it's like all right. you know, all deities are real, but we don't believe in the devil. Uh, so, what is right. the relationship? The devil is a concept. Yeah, what is what's the relationship between traditional witchcraft and the devil? Um, it's a very deep felt um, relationship. It's um, a very saucy relationship. <laughs> um, so I always point out to people that when you look at um, the folklore of witchcraft, witches and the devil go hand in hand more than any other, any other deity. Um, and you can make arguments that um, in, in certain um, places you find mentions of other people like, the Queen of Elfame, um, you find references to Diana um, in later writings, right? Like we were talking earlier about the witch cult hypothesis. Um, you have people promoting ideas of others, um, you know, like Charles Godfrey Leland and Aradia. 
Um, so, but when you look at when you look at folklore, you find um, it's a lot about the devil. Um, and there's different ways of looking at it. So, in, in modern, right, in this modern traditional witchcraft, um, people interpret the devil differently. Um, some people look at it through a very biblical um, idea, so like the fallen angels, the watchers, um, you know, Lucifer. Um, some people, like me, look at it more um, in terms of folklore. So this idea that um, the devil kind of reemerges in in popular folklore as this um, kind of trickster, this shapeshifter. Um, he's not. You know, it's almost like he's not so concerned about, like, um, you know, damnation um, per se, um, but he's more tricking people and testing their nature. Um, and then he pops up, too, in the way we talk about the landscape. Um, so, all of, I mean, all across the world, we have different um, natural features that, um, you know, are named after the devil. So I think about... Um, in one of the towns I lived in, we had a devil's punch bowl. And the idea is that the devil created this, this, um, this piece of land, this feature. Um, and so the devil pops up in this different way. And in some ways, he kind of is a survival demonized. Um, um, and I talk about that in the book. And I quote, I quote Gemma Gary, who is, you know, the beloved author of many traditional witchcraft books, and she wrote the foreword for my book, but she talks about this idea that, um, you know, the church in its, in its um, desire to really do away with, with pagan imagery and pagan spirits, um, they, they labeled these as demons and devils, but instead of getting rid of them, they really allowed them to survive on into that popular, um, popular folklore. Um, and so I look at the devil as being um, a multifaceted being, and I think that speaks to my um, soft polytheism, like my weird, my weird in between <laughs> of like they're all 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 spirits, and um, you know it's all one, but also separate autonomous beings at the same time, um, right? Like let's you're not alone with, <laughs> the, you're not alone like, with the soft polytheism. It's it's really okay. You've got. <laughs> You've got somebody else who's um, the same way right here. Um, I just try not to question it. Um, I'm just like, okay, spirits, you do you. Like, <laughs> um, so I tend to look at the devil as being a um, really as a as a name, as a placeholder. Just um, you know, I use the terms witch father and witch mother, um, and essentially those are really kind of archetypes or or titles for for many different beings that kind of coalesce and come together and come apart. Um, and so the devil, the devil is all of these different, all of these different beings that we encounter through folklore, um, both, you know, very, very um, old and maybe more modern. Like, um, like in the book, I talk about how one of the aspects of the devil for me is the green man. And we know that the green man um, really is more, more modern than I think we realize. And I know you talk about that a lot. Um, that's actually the first place I learned about the, kind of the historical origins of the green man. Um, so I think, um, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> no, it was really that's good. And it, and it also brings up several other questions. So you yeah. mentioned sort of like this 
devil related to Christianity, and you see this a lot in traditional witchcraft texts where they quote the Bible mm-hmm. and they bring up the watchers, mm-hmm. the Nephilim and stuff. It always makes me feel icky because it brings about the idea of witch blood, and I hate anything like that. Mm-hmm. It just it feels like, a, yeah. like an open door to invite racists in and bigotry that I don't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is that so prevalent in a lot of traditional witchcraft circles? Why would people want to get close to a religion mm-hmm. basically that has persecuted witches for 1,500 years? I okay. Here's here's the hot take, and maybe this maybe maybe this will be my controversial soundbite that people get really mad at me for. I don't think we'd have witchcraft without Christianity. Um, I think we would have had magic, um, but I don't think we would have had witchcraft. And that is because from from the relationship between um, between Christianity and and people who were persecuted as witches, we developed a folklore. Um, Granted, I mean, you can look to, and, and maybe I shouldn't say necessarily Christianity, because we know that witches existed um, in, in the classical world, but they were also, they still were not, they were not something that were celebrated or encouraged, you were encouraged to be. Um, and so maybe we would have had witchcraft, but I'm not sure what it would have looked like. Um, so... Um, in, in traditional witchcraft specifically, um, when we look at those trial transcripts, like those trial transcripts would not have existed without um, without Christianity. And um, and of course, again, like that's not to that is not to diminish the horrible atrocities that happened, um, right? Like that is something that we have to contend with um, on a consistent basis. Um, in terms of like the watchers. Um, is that I think that there's just, there's this undeniable relationship between Christianity and witchcraft. And, um, you know, I guess I can't speak a whole lot to that specific um, kind of mythos. It's not really the mythos that I follow in terms of the devil. Um, But like when you bring up the idea of witch blood, um, I think and sometimes people kind of think, think they're hooks or their teeth into that because again, it's another thing that offers this, sense of authenticity and empowerment. Like I have this witch blood that maybe other people don't that, you know, maybe I was chosen exclusively. Um, And I think that that's, I think that really is actually just kind of a misunderstanding of the concept of witch blood. Um, You know, then this might be a total tangent away from your question, but but I wrote this um, long ago on my, on my blog before Pathios, I wrote this really snarky brief piece about witch blood. And it was like, Here's a quiz to, to definitively figure out if you have witch blood. Question one, are you a witch? Question two, <laughs> do you have blood? Um, and it was like, you know, if you answered yes to both questions, um, then yes, you have witch blood. If you answered no to the first question, I'm not sure why you're here. And if you answered yes to the first question, but no to the second one, I think you need to seek out a doctor immediately um, because <laughs> you don't have any blood. Um, that's just one of the reasons but, I love you. That's fantastic. <laughs> but right. So I think some people tap into that for a sense of authenticity, and I think it's not necessarily a, a real or true understanding of the concept of, 
of witch blood. Um, that somehow, like, right, like, you're genetically born a witch. Um, like, that is some charmed um, TV nonsense. Um, I also feel the need to point I, out that it's not just traditional witches. I mean, Patricia Crowther used to write about witch blood. I mean, it was something that, uh-huh. you know, you can see back in the 50s and 60s uh, was, was especially common, though later it feels like it was kind of mostly dropped from Wiccan circles. Yeah. Okay. This is this is the best time of the show when we're both tipsy, and then anything can happen. <laughs> so I'm really fascinated that Jim McGarry wrote the introduction to your book. I mean, to me, Jim McGarry mm-hmm. is this is this like magical witch who lives in Cornwall. And Cornwall is fucking amazing if you ever get to go, you know. And really, yes. just kind of is off the beaten path from the rest of us. I mean, she doesn't have, like, the social media presence a lot of us do. And right. Stuff. She just does what she does. So how did it come about that she wrote the introduction to your book? So uh, first I just want to say that um, I agree. I think I think Gemma Gary is this very mystical, very mystical figure. Um, and so when I was getting towards the end of the book, Heather was like, hey, like, who do you think might write a forward for your book? And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. And she's like, well, who, like, who's kind of at the, you know, besides you, like, who's kind of at the forefront? And I was like, I don't know, maybe Gemma Gary. And she's like, oh, cool, just drop her an email. And I was like, what? I could do that? <laughs> um, yeah. And so I, I tracked on her email um, and I sent her, I just, I just sent her a letter being like, you know, hey, like I'm writing this book. Um, you know, I really enjoy your book. Um, would you be interested in writing the foreword? And a little while later, I get this email back, and she's like, oh, yeah, like, sure, I would love to. And I was like, oh, my God, what? Um, me? Um, and, yeah, so she wrote the forward. And one of the things I, I really appreciate about Gemma Gary and something that I think is missed by a lot of um, by a lot of traditional witches, and specifically when we kind of think about the people who are um, really wrapped up in these pissing contests against Wicca, is that um, – Gemma Gary is a very kind, a very kind soul. And she talks about, and some of, you can go listen to interviews she's done in, where she's asked about Wicca and she doesn't have a mean thing to say about it. Um, you know, and I believe she's actually, she was actually involved in Gardnerian or Alexandrian or both at some point. She says, you know, it's just, it's a lovely thing, but it just, you know, it wasn't really for me. And um, that's all there is to it. Um, and something else that I really appreciate about her, and I think this is one of the things that really gets missed about her, um, specifically with A Cornish Book of Waves, is that she talks right away in the intro that, like, this is not some ancient, you know, unbroken witch tradition. This is, a, this is her path, and this is something that she's put together based on folklore and her experiences. And I think that totally gets missed. Um, you know, I can count, you know, uh, numerous times I see online people talking about, you know, I'm a Cornish witch, and... Um, but I have no ties to Cornwall, but I read this book and this is the true, like, this is the absolute true form of witchcraft. And I'm like, I feel like you're missing the point um, of what she talks about. But um, anyways, so yeah, so she ended up writing the forward for my book. And, um, you know, I just thought when I, when I got the forward and I read it, like it was very surreal and just the, really awesome just knowing that like her words are going to kind of be the, 
the opening to this book. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a really awesome experience. And I actually um, sent her, I sent her a very personalized copy of the book. Um, so like, she was like, I'll cherish it forever. And I'm like, Oh my God, me. Did you get to talk to her on the phone so, or anything? Or was it just all email? It's just email. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm still yeah. like, whoa, that's so cool. I mean, The Devil's Dozen is a great book. Like, if you are interested in the Horn God at all, and yeah. you know everything everybody knows that Jason's pretty obsessed with that. It's it's like one of the books, and one of the things I've always appreciated about uh, Gemma Carey's work is that you know she is very open and honest about you know maybe this mm-hmm. isn't eight thousand you know eight hundred years old and stuff, and it's. A really right. different than a lot of the traditional witchcraft authors who really seem to hang their hat on this idea that what they're doing is genuinely ancient right. and old. I always really appreciate mm-hmm. her honesty. She's a good writer, too. Right. I mean, you just you kind of get She's lost in the She's a phenomenal writer. Yeah. She, she, like earlier when we talked about, like, um, really over-the-top language, um, She's somebody who can take very poetic, um, very flowery language, and again, I don't mean that disparagingly, um, and do it the right way, um, where it, it, it truly is about art um, versus pretentiousness. No, I never get the feeling that her work is pretentious or hard, like, you know, Me purposefully either. hard to understand. You know, it seems, to me, it seems very straightforward. It's just well-written. And the poetic yep. is a good word for it. You know, I, f- I feel like my inner mm-hmm. traditional witch is coming out in this hour we've been spending together. Uh, well, hey. you haven't, I know <laughs> that you haven't read the Horn God book yet, but I so recently finished a Horn God book. And by the end of it, it was the interpretation of traditional witches when it comes to mm-hmm. the figure that is often called the witch father or the horn god of traditional witchcraft. Mm-hmm. To me, that seems like the more authentic tradition. It also feels like the tradition Gerald Gardner was writing about in the 1950s. Yeah, I would, agree. I would absolutely agree with that. And I really um, can't wait for you really, to read the book. <laughs> I'm like, not, there's no pressure. I'm almost there. I'm, okay. I'm almost no there and I'm so excited. No pressure. Um, I am very excited for your book. I'm I'm excited for all your books. Um, so. But you agree with that though? That, like Gardner's interpretation of the Horn God really has more in common with the interpretations of traditional witches today than most people mm-hmm. who would consider themselves right. wicked. No, I do think that's true, and I think uh, you know, as you brought up earlier, I think it speaks to that. Um, you know, sometimes people refer to it really harshly as like the watering down of witchcraft. Um, and and I think that there was a definite need and a reason for that. Um, you know, like when we think about the fight for, um, for rights, when we think about the satanic panic, like there's reasons that those things happened, um, why there was this need to create this distance between um, witchcraft and the devil and witchcraft in any, um, you know, sense of being dangerous. Um, and, and obviously that, that has had its resulting repercussions. Um, but, but there was a need for that. And I think people forget about that. And especially, I mean, like, you know, I was born, I was, I was born at a time when that, 
you know, that was no longer necessarily really a thing. And I think a lot of the, the newer, um, the newer um, generation of witches and specifically traditional witches don't understand that nuance, that like there was a genuine need um, to create that distance in that space. Um, and so like when I think about like the horned goblins, you were talking about like, you know, the horned God is not the devil and he's this really benign, um, you know, horned Jesus figure, um, which is like, oh God, we could, we could really go into the sexy horned Jesus figure um, that is just, uh, I just, I think it's so cringy. Um, but, um, but I do think, um, you know, where Gardner was at, um, you know, and, and I know, like, he kind of talks about it in different ways, but, you know, he mentions the devil in his books. Um, and, um, you know, and he definitely was still pulling from Murray, and Murray kind of had her own um, way of, you know, um, I guess watering down the devil even. Um, but... There's just a lot. I think, I think if anything, I'm just like, I always just come back to the fact that there's so much um, really juicy historical information that gets missed by people um, that leads to these misunderstandings. You know, when we think about that, that Wicca versus traditional witchcraft feud, it's just, it's all based on just like stereotypes and misunderstanding and people not doing their time to understand where the other side is coming from. It often feels like the history of modern witchcraft doesn't really begin until like 1979 when people finally Mm -hmm. digest drawing down the moon in the spiral dance and everything (laughs) before that is kind of shoved Mm -hmm. aside and nobody like Mm -hmm. quotes Joe Gardner. Nobody looks at Doreen's, you know, early stuff. And, you know, the, the picture that we have of Gerald Gardner's witchcraft from the 50s and early 60s right. is really different from like Wicca, a guide for the solitary practitioner by Scott Cunningham. I mean, right. they're like completely different crafts. Right. Right. And, and in, you know, and I think things are getting better um, with, with newer writers. Um, but like, I remember kind of in my upbringing as a young witch, is that Gerald Gardner was only mentioned in passing, and it was usually in some sort of, like, dismissive. Um, I mean, even reading Wiccan books, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, like, Gerald Gardner kind of did this thing, and, you know, he maybe or maybe was maybe not was, like, this kind of pervert, and it's like, you know. <laughs> um, right? And, and, like, the thing is, is that, like, and this is not to, like, this is not to dismiss, like, problematic. There was so much problematic behavior back then that, um, you know, like, but there are certain people that kind of seem like they're lightning rods. Um, like they're the ones that we fixate on and we forget about other people who did other things. Um, and to be fair, like a, a lot of the early books from the fifties and sixties and even the early seventies were not easy reads. I mean, it was a really different time. Right. Really Satanism kind of commingled with witchcraft as we understand it today, mm-hmm. in a lot of books, in a way that would make most of us uncomfortable. 
even those of us who acknowledge mm-hmm. the role of the devil in sort of the things that we do. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of shunted that, a lot right. of that aside. But, yeah. Right. Oh, God, I love talking to you so much. It's just like, I could be oh, so nerdy. I can be so nerdy. I know. I love, I love being nerdy. And I'm like, ah, I just want to talk about witchcraft history forever. Yeah. Maybe we'll have to do like some sort of workshop at a festival together where we can be completely nerdy together. That would be great. That would be a dream. I don't want to like pressure you into doing things with me, but you know, I think it would be really fun. No, because you have to give me a glass of wine, and then I'm like, okay. Oh, I'm sure Ari can pick out a good wine. I think we'll have it ready for you. So before I let you go, we're, like, already running over my usual hour, but, you know, sometimes things are just so cool, and I just want to keep them going a little longer, and I can do yeah. that, which is great. And so yeah. I, know that you're, I know that you're currently writing your next book, and I don't really even know what it's yeah. about, but you've asked me a question about something already you're researching in your book. So I'm super excited about your book. Can you tell us what it's about? Yes. So I'm super, I'm super open about it and mostly because I'm super territorial about it. Um, <laughs> like um, I have this thing where sometimes I wait too long and then somebody else does the thing. So this time around, I'm like, I'm doing this thing. Um, so the second book is all about the witch's Sabbath. Um and it's definitely um, for people who enjoyed the more historical and folkloric aspects of the first book. Um, I think you'll enjoy this book particularly. Um, so it really dives into the history of the concept of the Witch's Sabbath, um, kind of thinking about like the work of Carl Ginsburg, but perhaps more approachable. Um, and um, looking at how the concept of the witch's Sabbath really developed over time, um, and then looking at how it reemerges in modern witchcraft and how we can apply it to our craft today. Um, the witch's Sabbath is a big part of traditional witchcraft, um, hedge crossing, spirit flight, journeying into the other world, um, specifically to attend this otherworldly meeting between witches and the devil and various other spirits. Um, and it's a topic that I'm particularly passionate about. So um, if you enjoy geeky history, you will really enjoy this book because um, it's a lot of history and folklore. Heaven knows I enjoy geeky history. Oh, and I assume that people who listen to this podcast like me and like my books, which means they probably also like geeky history. So, yeah, I'm super yeah. excited. Um, right faster. Get done. I'm really, I know. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm working as fast as I can. Um, it's It's been a lot of research and a lot of really hard work. I'm constantly surrounded by just monumental stacks of books um, because it's also looking at a very um, broad European um perspective. So um, looking at multiple different countries um, where the Sabbath popped up, including America. Um, American witch lore gets so overlooked. Um, and and we, have, we have so much uh, like really fascinating lore in America about witchcraft and witches. Um, but we often, we often kind of go for more of a European um, 
you know, British, British Isles um, perspective. And, and then unfortunately we kind of miss out, but, um, but the Sabbath feels like has to a lot of ways people that pops that, up here. It feels like to a lot of people, the idea of like witchcraft in the British Isles is somehow more authentic than witchcraft in the United mm-hmm. States. You know, like we're always right. like looking back to Europe and, you know, people, mm-hmm. people have been living here for thousands of years and right. people have been accused of witchcraft here for 400 plus years. I mean, I think there are things that yep. we should look at in our backyard. Oh, definitely. So, yeah. So with that, I'm going to let you plug anything. Like where can people find out more about you online? Where can people buy your book? All of those kind of things. Sure. Well, you can buy my book, The Crooked Path, an Introduction to Traditional Witchcraft, anywhere books are sold. Um, I definitely always recommend that people support local bookstores, um, support your local New Age or metaphysical or cult shop. Um, and, and whether or not you do that, please leave a review on Amazon. I think that's the most helpful place to leave a review if you feel so inclined. Um, but I'm also... Um, you can find me on my blog at Patheos by Affirming and Stang, which we didn't even get into. I was I was totally ready to talk about the embarrassing way I met you and um, oh, shit. Like, we didn't even what talk a- about that. I was gonna talk about Summerland, <laughs> but you know, we'll just have right. to have you back so we can be nerdy well, together yeah. again. It'll be it'll be yeah. fun. And we'll talk about and then we'll give people the, the lowdown on that. Um, yes. but yes, by Affirme and Stang. Um, I'm on um, YouTube and Instagram under Kelvin Mercury. Um, you can find me there. Um, I'm most active on Instagram. Um, so if you're looking to interact with me, that's probably the best place. Instagram is such a nicer world than Facebook. So yeah, I better. don't really, um, I really don't do much with Facebook toxic and gross it's a good call you know who else doesn't do much with facebook <laughs> next week's guest thorn mooney who will be here and we're going to talk about traditional wicca with thorn mooney instead of traditional witchcraft mm-hmm. with kelvin and it'll be really fun thorn's one of my favorite guests i want to thank kelvin for being here his book is called the crooked path it's oh. fucking fantastic it's so good my my blurb didn't thank even you. make it to the book because there were so many other great blurbs because it really is a fantastic book. Even if you don't think you're interested in traditional witchcraft, you should still pick it up because I think you're going to find things to enjoy in it. As always, thank you for listening to Witches, Whiskey, and Wit. I'm Jason. I'll be back next week. Thank again, thanks again to Keldon, who's just a fantastic guest, one of my favorite people. I really appreciate you for being here with us tonight. And we'll see you, thank you so much. in a week. Thank you all. Good night.